we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Normally, part tours. <laughs> That's a word. That's a word. <laughs> but before we jump into this week's episode, we have three lovely patrons to shout out. More than lovely, we have Jessica, Nicole, and Jesse. Woo! You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. What's for more your than support. lovely? More than lovely? Mm-hmm. Lovelier. Loveliest. Okay. Lovelierest. <laughs> Fair enough. So if you guys have just a moment of your time out of your day, give us a five-star review because we need some stars. We do. I mean, this is... You know, it's like kindergarten and you get like a star for the day. And then the days you don't get a star, you feel really bad about yourself. But just brighten our day. We need to... I want to go home to mom and tell her I got a star. (laughs) Like we're at 4.4. Get us a 4.5, please. Get us out of the low four zone. Yeah. For the sake of our own mental health, like, please. Please. All right, anyways, um, so where we left off, Ricky was discussing how Barry first learned about Tony's death. He receives a text that his sister died, and like any of us would do, he calls Harold right away. But that call went to voicemail followed by a text saying Harold has no cell sync. But then he mysteriously gets a call from Harold. A minute later. Explaining a whole story. So it's almost like... He needed a second to think about it. Like, yeah, like, okay. like, I need to call you on my time. Right. But during this call, he's giving Barry the story about what happened to Tony. The story about trying to take pictures of wild turkeys. Which, why would you take pictures of wild turkeys? Like, who cares? It's a right. turkey. Exactly. Well, I mean, it gets it gets interesting. So hold your horses there, Ricky. The only turkey I want to take a picture of is one at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> All right. Anyway, can you quit? Sorry. So you hear the news your sister died, it would just be total shock. However, Tony's father isn't buying the story at all. He knew as soon as he heard about Tony's death, Harold was responsible. And the suspicious vibes circling around Harold just continue. So let's jump into this week's episode. After the accident, many others close to Harold had grown at least a little suspicious. Virginia and Ron Cobble were friends of Harold and Tony, and they also received texts that Tony was dead. Harold called them Sunday morning and asked them to help him break the news to Haley. He told them they were the only people who knew she was dead. They thought her family must have been informed, but Harold insisted that he hadn't told them yet, even though he absolutely had, along with many other people that he texted. Ever the controller, once they came over to help, Harold gave Ron inconsistent tellings of what had happened. 
For instance, he started off by saying that he and Tony had taken the hike because they were searching for places they could eventually bring Haley, implying that the trail was new to them. Yet at another point, he said that he couldn't believe Tony had fallen because we've been up there a million times. He started delegating tasks to them to plan Tony's memorial service. But when they got to the subject of Haley, Virginia and Ron suggested that he should get her counseling and take her out of school for a bit. Harold's friend Ron already had a plan to tell her the news at a playground and said he wasn't worried about her and that she's a strong little girl. At this point, both Virginia and Ron suspected that Harold had killed Tony due to his strange behavior and lack of emotion, plus his ability to delegate tasks with no issue, but they wanted to stay friends with him in order to keep Haley safe. Harold's long-trusted friends, Lee and Rory Hedick, who had helped him during the cabin accident, also had their suspicions about Harold, but bit their tongues to keep Haley safe. And Harold told them yet another version of events. He said that it was Tony's idea to go off trail in order to get away from the crowds, not snap pictures of turkeys. Harold said he looked down to figure out how to use his new cell phone. And Lee couldn't help but think it was strange that Harold had no emotion and didn't express guilt about not being able to save his wife. He also seemed to blame her for the accident because she wanted to go off trail. So things really took a turn when Ranger Faraday, the ranger at the scene of Tony's death, came to interview him at Harold's home. When Ranger Mark Faraday came to visit Harold at his home, he began asking him questions about the trip and explained to Harold that it was now his job to investigate. Harold said they ventured off trail when they realized it would be crowded. His wife tried to take pictures of wild turkeys, but Faraday didn't let that weak story slide this time. He told Harold that wild turkeys would be unlikely to be found on the mountain. And Harold said, well, it may have been a deer. Then he said, no, actually, it was to get a better view. And then Faraday continued to question him. He said it was actually to find a spot where they could make love. And he'd even brought a special blanket for it. And then there was the matter of the autopsy. The autopsy, to Harold's chagrin, was declared undetermined. The heart rate and respiration Harold had noted were not consistent with the rapid way Tony's body had apparently been pumping blood to whenever it was needed as a response to her fall, which was not 30 feet, but more like 130 feet. And it just gets worse from there. Harold's behavior started to get especially weird around the time of the funeral. When the Bertolais came out for Tony's funeral, they all had their suspicions about Harold, but they played it smart and tried to keep their cards close to their chest during their visit in order to gather more information and stay close to Haley. Harold now had a new assistant, Linda Wilson, who wore what the Bertolais described as a Janet Jackson headpiece at all times. You know, a phone that looks like a pop star's stage microphone. Linda seemed to always be talking to someone, and after the Bertolais noticed baby monitor cameras hidden behind objects around the house, they started to realize that they were being watched and suspected that Linda was in fact just communicating with Howard, who stayed down in his basement office. And as a relevant side note, Linda and her husband were also the people that Harold had chosen to be Haley's guardians if anything should ever happen to him. 
not her loving grandparents, aunts, or uncles, the faux pop star fake assistant lady. If all of this wasn't strange enough, Harold subjected the Bertolays to a slideshow he planned to show at her funeral. But there were hardly any pictures of Tony, just lots of pictures of Harold and Haley. Whatever pictures there were of Tony made it seem as if her life hadn't begun until she met Harold. And he played it again to everyone's disgust at the actual funeral. At the actual funeral, Howard was acting strange. He kept his own mother out of the holding room at the church with himself in the Bertolais and put Linda in charge of keeping her out. It's also worth noting that Harold found out the day of the funeral that the coroner's report was declared undetermined. This was the first time that Tony's brother, Barry, had seen Howard cry throughout the entire aftermath of Tony's death. According to Barry, Harold only showed two emotions outside of his normal, impatient, controlling nature that had stayed constant throughout the tragedy. He'd been angry after the interview he had with Ranger Faraday, and he now cried real tears and was visibly shaking. He explained his reaction to the coroner's report by saying it would hamper his ability to focus on Haley and her recovery. Harold had said before that Haley would be just fine without her mother. But the coroner's report made him suddenly concerned for her well-being. Or was he actually just concerned for his well-being? Harold truly became undone when the Bertolais were leaving the funeral by running out of the door of the church right after they left and yelling, you knew Tony was miserable in Mississippi. You knew she was much happier out here. In the days after the funeral, Ranger Faraday and the other park rangers realized that this case was becoming more than what they could handle. The strange interview with Harold and the strange circumstances of Tony's death, the ways in which Harold's story didn't line up with what any of the rangers found at the scene. And this is the point where the FBI got involved. Thank God. Mark Faraday met with special agent Bob Schott, who was the equivalent of a detective as far as the National Park Service was concerned. Schott and Faraday first went over the timeline. The first glaring inconsistency was that Tony's fall, according to Harold, had happened at 5 p.m., but Harold's phone records showed that the text that supposedly distracted Harold came in at 5.54, nearly an hour after Tony had fallen. Harold had said that it had taken him 45 minutes to get down to where Tony had landed, and he first called 911 at 5.55, so his timeline about receiving the text as a distraction didn't make any sense. And as far as the 911 calls go, Harold had described his wife's injuries as a concussion, while Tony's injuries had been so dramatic and her collision had been violent. Her fall had practically removed her scalp and left a large gash in her forehead, as well as breaking her neck. The heart rate and breathing that Harold reported were not consistent with what they would have been after Tony's injuries. And Harold's own breathing was also a red flag. CPR is exhausting, and Harold had been breathing just fine when he spoke to dispatchers, despite his claims that he spent close to an hour performing CPR on his dying wife. And on top of all of that, Tony's lipstick was intact. 
When CPR is done correctly, it can often be forceful enough to break bones, and even if Harold was doing it incorrectly, his wife's lipstick would have at least been smudged if he had tried to revive her. And then there were the anonymous letters about his first wife's death and the X found on the map inside Harold's Jeep, as well as the long list of Harold's odd behavior after Tony's death. And because Tony's death took place in a national park, the FBI was now contacted, and the death of Tony Henthorne became a homicide investigation. The Bertolais began communicating with Schott and telling her everything they knew, working as a team with her. And Schott is the one who informed Tony's brother Todd that the car accident that his first wife had died in was more of a freak accident or horrific proportions that any of them had realized. She was changing a tire on a dark, deserted road and was crushed to death pinned beneath the metal brake rotor of a Jeep that somehow fell off the jacks holding it up. Hearing the details of that freak accident made Todd even more suspicious of his sister's accident. And he told Shot point blank, that's even more ridiculous than my sister's death. Yeah, so on that note, let's talk about Harold's first wife, Lynn. A little less than five years before he met Tony, Harold had lost his first wife, Lynn. As was evident by their attendance and support at his wedding, Harold stayed close to Lynn's family and her parents, visiting them with Haley more frequently than he had visited Haley's actual grandparents, Yvonne and Bob Bertolet. He also stayed in touch with Lynn's maid of honor and best friend, Kim LaFerriere. Kim had met Lynn at a Christian camp and in a time before cell phones were as common as they are today. They had gotten in the habit of exchanging letters about hopes, dreams, and men over the common years. So she had heard all about Harold, who she had first met in college and later developed a relationship with. Kim was excited when she found out Lynn and Harold were getting married, but his controlling nature gave her pause. He was being very controlling about the wedding planning being a bit of a groomzilla, in fact. Not a term you often hear, but that definitely applies to Harold Henthorne. Lynn's older sister, Lizanne, noticed this too, remembering that Harold had a binder for every possible wedding vendor, DJ, photographer, florist, and Harold didn't think it was excessive to do 10 interviews apiece for every person he and Lynn needed to work their wedding. Much like it had been the case with Tony and her friends and family, Lynn's friend Kim noticed that she could never get Lynn on the phone without also talking to Harold. Sometimes she thought it was just the two of them speaking and then would sense that Lynn was holding back and asked if Harold was on the line. Then she'd hear Harold's booming voice say, Hey, Kimmy, enthusiastically, as if it was the most normal thing in the world that he had been there the whole time listening without her knowing it. Lizanne, Lynn's sister, noticed that she never got a chance to speak one-on-one -on -one with Lynn, even when they were in person. And Lynn explained this by saying that after the wedding, she and Harold had both decided that he was the head of the household. And that meant that she was to submit to Harold and nothing she did was private anymore. She was to have no secrets, no conversations that were hers alone. And she told her sister that they both wanted it that way. This arrangement was hurtful to Kim, 
who had been used to sharing everything with Lynn. Their conversations became short and infrequent, and their lengthy tell-all letters stopped altogether. And then Kim asked Lynn to be her maid of honor, just as she'd been at her wedding. And even after Kim offered to pay for her plane ticket, Harold wouldn't let her accept it and wouldn't allow her to go. As Lynn was a natural caregiver and a social worker who had a past in ministering to prisoners and teaching handicapped children, it made sense that she very much wanted to be a mother. Harold, however, was more focused on achieving a successful and lucrative life. Eventually, they did start trying, but they had trouble conceiving. Lynn discovered that she had benign tumors on her uterus. Most benign tumors are harmless, and the discovery made Lynn hopeful that she found her fertility issue and that it was solvable. But unfortunately, she was never to become a mother. A few months later, the car accident that had been mentioned to the Bertolets occurred. But the accident was much stranger and inexplicable than they could have imagined. Lynn, who had been an extremely cautious woman with arthritis that made her even more cautious, had been crushed by a car while attempting to change a tire. After her death, Harold stayed close with the Rochelles and many of Lynn's friends and co-workers, but that may have been because he put a lot of effort into doing so. Lynn's family and friends largely felt that they saw quite a bit more of Harold after Lynn's death than they had before. Even after he met Tony and had Haley, Harold always seemed to have ample time to visit the Rochelles and made it clear that they could always stay with him in Denver. But this seemed to contradict that busy schedule that he claimed to have, 90 business people working for him while teaching a money recovery class and having a second job in diamonds. So now, in light of the suspicious around Tony's death and the FBI's involvement, Detective David Wheeler began looking into Lynn's 20-year-old case to see if anything had been overlooked. So now, in the light of the suspicious death around Tony's death and the FBI's involvement, Detective David Wheeler began looking into Lynn's 20-year-old case to see if anything had been overlooked. And it seems that quite a few things have been overlooked. Harold Henthorne had talked to many different members of the Douglas County law enforcement on the night of May 6, 1995, and in the days afterwards. There were lots of inconsistencies in the versions of the stories he shared. To one cop, Harold said that he and Lynn ate dinner at a nearby restaurant prior to the accident. To another, he said that they were on their way to the restaurant. To another cop, Harold said that they were driving east and another west. To one cop, he said that they left to go on a drive at 1 p.m. and then to another at 7 p.m. To one, he said that the tire was flat. Another, it was merely spongy. To one cop, Harold said he jacked up the fallen car and pulled Lynn out from underneath it. To another, he said Lynn was rescued by a random group of helpful strangers. And there were even more inconsistencies about how the Jeep fell off not one, but two of the jacks that he said he used. To some people, he said that the Jeep fell off when he threw the flat tire into the back. 
to others, he said that the flat tire actually bounced out and it was the spare, which he said had loosened, that fell and provided the impact necessary to jolt the Jeep off its moorings. No officer had bothered to call the restaurant where Harold claimed he and Lynn ate before the accident, and the coroner report didn't indicate if she'd already eaten dinner or not. The Douglas County police officers had taken Harold's word about Lynn's life insurance policy that apparently amounted to $300,000, which was still large considering her modest salary of $14,000 a year. But if that checked, they would have found that Harold actually received twice that much because not long before her death, Harold insisted on a policy that doubled the compensation if Lynn died as a result of an accident. So I'm sure you're wondering, how could so much be overlooked? Well, it turns out that the man in charge of the original investigation had been a detective for just five months and had never been the lead of any homicide. So it got mishandled. The Douglas County coroner had also declared Lynn's death an accident less than a week after she died, with no inconsistent witness statements to compare, no suspicious life insurance policies to review, and no sense of Harold's strange behavior at the scene. The coroner had little choice but to conclude that Lynn had been the victim of some bad judgment and even worse, luck. No physical evidence from the 20-year-old case existed, but buried inside the report, Detective Weaver found a reference to a footprint. The lead investigator mentioned a partial print on the wheel well above the missing tire, the one that Lynn had supposedly been trying to help change when she died. The investigators noted that the brand of shoes Harold was wearing at the time, Sperry Topsiders, and took pictures of the tread, but they hadn't bothered to actually check the print against the shoe to see if they matched. To Detective Weaver, Harold's behavior and inaccurate life insurance figure might be indicative of an alternative explanation, which is that Harold may have kicked the car off its jacks. There was also a note in the file about a call from a woman named Patricia Montoya saying, did you arrest the husband yet? So Detective Weaver got in touch with Miss Montoya. On the night of Lynn's death, Montoya and her family were driving home and they were the first people to witness his incredibly odd behavior. Harold flagged them down and it seemed unclear to Patricia Montoya whether he actually wanted help or not based on his behavior. For instance, Howard yelled at them while they dragged Lynn's unconscious body out from underneath the Jeep. He let them take the lead when it came to giving her CPR, and he refused to take off the nice coat he was wearing, even as his wife lay dying on the cold ground wearing only a t-shirt. Montoya had used her own coat to cover Lynn and left it at the scene once she and her family realized the police were almost there. Patricia had asked if they arrested the husband the next day because she thought Howard's behavior in the accident were the creepiest thing she'd ever seen. So she knew exactly why Weaver was calling even when he was reaching out 20 years later. Weaver also spoke to a former volunteer with the West Douglas County Fire Department who thought that Harold's calm behavior in the accident itself were the strangest she'd ever seen. 
And then Weaver went about doing the work that should have been done 20 years before. He found a Jeep close to the make and model of the one that fell on Lynn and rested the car on the same jacks Harold said he used. They tossed a flat in the back as Harold said he'd done in one version of the story. They slammed the tailgate. They took away one jack and then did everything again. Finally, Detective Weaver took his foot and in the same place where the original partial print was found, kicked the Jeep. And that was when it came crashing down. Many of the friends and family of Harold had known Lynn and been shocked by her death, shared feelings of deja vu about receiving news of his second wife's passing. Some of them even spoke, Kim LaFerriere included, and realized that there were inconsistencies in what Harold had told them about Lynn's death. One had been told a version in which she had been reaching for a flashlight, and another had been told she was reaching for lug nuts. Meanwhile, in the FBI investigation of Tony's death, searches of Harold's home and computers revealed that Harold hadn't earned a salary since 1992, which was three years before Lynn's death. He was not the successful businessman that he claimed to be to so many people. He had been fired from his first job in Colorado at Chevron, a job that he claimed he left on his own. He was fired his next two jobs selling diamonds and fundraising for a Christian university. He had been arrested for shoplifting $40 of underwear. And he had taken out a second mortgage on his and Lynn's house shortly before his death. Investigators even let Grace Rochelle know, who was the ex-wife of Lynn's brother Kevin, that Harold would actually profit from her death were she to die. Apparently, Grace had asked Harold for help setting up a life insurance policy that would benefit her daughters in the event she died, but had disagreements with Harold along the way and asked him to cancel it. She had decided that it wasn't the kind of business she wanted to be conducting with her ex-brother-in-law. But Harold hadn't canceled the policy. In fact, investigators believed that he had forged Grace's signature and actually increased the payout. He'd then make himself the sole beneficiary, rather than the girls. Investigators believed that Harold was planning on having Grace become his next payday down the line. In the months that followed Tony's death, the idea of insurance payouts being Harold's motive became glaringly evident. Harold had told Ranger Mark Faraday that he had a $1 million life insurance policy that would pay out directly to their daughter Haley. After months of investigating, Beth Schott discovered that Harold had actually taken out a total of three policies on Tony, each worth $1.5 million, and all three naming him the sole beneficiary. Harold had also made himself the beneficiary of an annuity that Bob and Yvonne Bertolet set up for Haley. He'd done this in 2011 just a month before Tony's strange, near-fatal accident at the cabin. And through it all, Harold kept telling more lies. Harold was aware of what the FBI was uncovering to some degree, and tried to keep the Bertolets on his side by spinning his own version of the story. He actually admitted to them on a brief visit with Haley that he had not, in fact, had a job during the entire 12 years he and Tony were together but he'd lied about it for the past decade and a half because of Tony. 
it was her fault because she desperately wanted to have a family and get out of her medical practice in Mississippi. And that meant moving to Denver. Tony was worried that they wouldn't want her to move to Colorado if they knew neither Tony nor Harold had a job there. Plus, Tony wanted him to raise the children, and they both thought that people in Mississippi, specifically her parents, wouldn't be comfortable with the idea of a man doing the majority of the parenting. Which, honestly, this is just a really dressed-up way of calling them both backwards. On that trip, where he spun more lies around his lies, he was texting a divorcee who had a kid going to school with Haley, was gloating about her taking his advice on purchasing a car. He had immediately begun reeling in another woman he could control. Meanwhile, Harold's daughter was suffering and not doing well. Haley was being teased at school, had mysterious stomach pains, and was probably aware that many of the parents and teachers believed that Harold was guilty. And Haley even asked the Bertolais if they could hide her in a suitcase and take her back to Mississippi with them, and making comments to them that mirrored her mother's. Life is hard with daddy. And then things started to fall apart for Harold Henthorne. Ever since the FBI had gotten involved, Harold had been attempting to coach family and friends into what to say by reiterating to them that they needed to say he was the perfect husband and that he and Tony, not to mention he and Lynn, once had a perfect marriage. It seems that everyone in his life now had heavy suspicion that Harold had murdered Tony and perhaps Lynn. But they tried to stay close to Harold in order to be able to obtain information for the Bertolais, who no longer were in communication with Harold and the FBI. Kim, Lynn's former best friend and maid of honor, had even worn a wire for the FBI hoping for a confession surrounding Lynn's murder, but didn't get it. Harold didn't know about the wire, but did eventually find out that she had taken a detective's call and spoken with him. Harold asked what she told them, and Kim said the truth. And what was the truth, Harold asked. Lynn replied, the truth is that my friendship with Lynn changed after you married her. At which point Harold said, oh, Kimmy, it changed because Lynn found other friends. And I'm mostly including this because it's so satisfying to hear that someone blew up at him. And Kim, she really blew up at him. She said, do not ever speak for her. Don't you ever tell me what to think or to say, because it's all lies. Don't ever do it again, or I'll smack you upside your stupid head. And for the first time, she rendered Howard speechless. It was taking the FBI a long time to officially charge Harold, because out of all things he'd done wrong, when it came to Tony's death, he had done one thing right ensured that there were no witnesses. The circumstantial evidence was huge. Harold's varied accounts, his contradictions, the fact that he made it clear that he would profit off of her death via insurance money and lied about the amount of that money, and all other suspicious behaviors we've been discussing in this episode. And even though he seemed obviously guilty to friends and family members and law enforcement agents investigating him, it didn't matter because Harold was presumed innocent until proven otherwise in court, and no one had come forward to say that they'd seen Harold push Tony off a cliff. An investigation with no witnesses and little physical evidence can take a long time, and it's now been two years. 
But Agent Beth Schott got some help from FBI Special Agent Johnny Grusing. He joined at a time when they were trying to figure out one remaining mystery. What had Harold been doing on Thursdays, the day of the week that he told everyone he was traveling for work? Grusing compiled a year's worth of Harold's cell phone data and a year's worth of his credit card info. He started examining the cell phone records by looking at the day of Tony's death, specifically the six-hour window between when Harold told a 911 operator that his battery was low and when he returned to the trailhead with the ranger at midnight. And Grusing discovered that Harold wasn't just using his phone. He was using it to a degree that would make his claims of a dying battery suspect at best. In those six hours, Harold made 22 calls and exchanged 98 text messages. And despite Harold's claims of being out of town on Thursdays for work, his credit card receipts and cell phone tower records led Grusing to discover that he had actually been spending his Thursdays in a Panera Bread outside of Denver. He also discovered, after carefully reviewing his cell activity, that Harold had been up to visit Rocky Mountain National Park nine times in the two months prior to Tony's fall. Harold told Ranger Faraday he'd only made one scouting trip to Rocky Mountain National Park prior to Tony's fall. But now it's plain to see, he made nine. Also, he told Ranger Faraday that he avoided one rocky knob that he saw a white sheet hanging from. But the white sheet had been removed the week before Tony's death. So it was clearly something Harold had remembered from a previous trip scouting the area, that Tony would eventually die. Now a bigger picture was being revealed. A man who stood to gain millions from the death of his wife had spent many hours in and around the place where she would die, lied about his presence there, and was careless enough to leave a map in his car that pointed to the exact location where she would fall. It all added up to an image of Harold, not as a criminal mastermind, but as someone comfortable enough with his own ability to spin the truth that the details wouldn't matter. And this led the FBI to the conclusion that Harold had pushed Tony. And finally, Harold got arrested. On November 6, 2014, Harold dropped Haley off at school and was pulled over before he got home. The stop was a ruse, and Harold was arrested for the murder of Tony Henthorne. But even from the back of the police car, Harold tried to lecture Agent Schott, Detective Weaver, and anyone else who would listen about what they should do, how they should contact Haley, where they should take her, and so on. Obviously, this was not a situation he could control anymore. And Harold had his day in court. Once the case made it to court, prosecutors fought for the right to talk about Lynn's death as well. These aren't just remarkably similar events. Assistant U.S. Attorney Justin Grewell argued, they're eerily similar events. Harold's attorney argued that if the jury were allowed to hear about Lynn's death or the falling wood beam that had injured Tony at the cabin, it would be detrimental to his case. But Judge R. Brooke Jackson sided with the prosecution and decided that jurors would get to hear the whole story. On Tuesday, September 8, 2015, the trial of the United States of America versus Harold Henthorne officially began. 
So the prosecution presented the full story regarding Lynn, the cabin, the insurance policies, and Harold's fake jobs. The defense basically described Harold as a man who was unusual and liked about having a successful career, perhaps due to vanity or no self-esteem, but that none of this made him a murderer. At one point, the jurors were presented with a series of photographs that Tony had taken of Harold right before she died. In the photos, Harold stands on the edge of the cliff his wife would fall from, posing for a series of photos that ended with him looking out into the distance. But Harold had exerted such control in both marriages and exploited these women who entrusted him with being the head of the household that to family, friends, and perhaps jurors in the courtroom, a line could be drawn between the photographs that the idea Harold may have told her to go pose there next. Despite the fact that she was a cautious woman, it would stand to reason that he asked her to imitate his exact last pose with her back turned, and then rather than taking the photo, shoved her off the cliff. In her final remarks, Sanita Hazara pretty much slammed the government's case. Harold, she said, learned from Lynn's death. He learned many things. Most importantly, you can kill wives to get money. It worked well for him the first time. He learned that if you tell some sort of story to the cops, they will go away. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same story. You just need to come up with a version. And that's something the defendant is very good at doing. As you heard, he lived his whole life, from just about 1990 on, lying about his job, lying about what he did, essentially leading a double life. He also learned that you need to pick a remote spot, but you need to make sure it's really remote and it's really far away from help. Because the one thing that almost spoiled the defendant's plans was the good Samaritans that came to help. He knew his next spot for the next murder had to be farther, more remote, so help couldn't come. What he didn't count on was that the location he picked for his next crime was in the park. To quote him directly, he didn't count on the problems that would come by, quote, Tony getting herself killed in the park, end quote. And the problems were that the National Park Service and the FBI got involved. The last human touch Tony Henthorne ever felt was not a loving caress from her spouse, but instead a push from him. A push from this defendant, a push that shoved her, sent her cascading over a cliff that's taller than the seventh floor of this courthouse. A push that broke her body and took her scalp off and ended her life. A push that deprived Haley Henthorne of her mother and Yvonne and Bob Bertolet of their daughter. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, hold this defendant responsible for what he did to Tony. Find him guilty of first-degree murder. Harold's attorney, Craig Truman, didn't call a single person to the stand in his client's defense. For a lawyer representing a man facing first-degree murder charge where there are no witnesses, this was not an unusual strategy. Truman's job was to raise reasonable doubts, something he attempted to do diligently during his closing statements, in which Truman emphasized that his client often embellished, bent the truth, and talked nonsense 
but that didn't make him a murderer. The prosecution, in contrast, rested its case with a rebuttal to that argument, saying, when you can't tell the truth, it's not called nonsense, it's called a lie. And then the verdict came in. The jury spent just under half a day in deliberation, and on Monday, September 21st at 3.01 p.m., the 12 members of the jury filed into the courtroom and handed the foreman the verdict. Guilty. Tony Henthorne's family feels lives will be saved now that Harold Henthorne is off the streets. Once the verdict was read, an emotional exchange between Tony Henthorne's mom and a juror. Take a listen as what was said after the two hugged. Take a listen. I appreciated it very much. And she just said, as one mom to another, I feel your pain. Harold was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Tony Henthorne. He has not yet been found guilty of the death of Lynn Henthorne. As horrible as the story is, there are some positive things to note in the aftermath of Harold's arrest. The happy ending to the story is that Haley is in Mississippi with the family that loves her. Her guardians are Tony's brother Barry and his wife Paula. Her grandparents live nearby and visit often. Even though Haley still legally is a Henthorn because the adoption process is a long one, she chooses to go by Bertolet. She receives letters from her father but doesn't open them because she doesn't want to. And after a long battle in court, Bob and Yvonne Bertolet also won the right to have Tony's last earthy remains delivered to them in Mississippi. So finally, Tony is back in the only home she ever really loved, close to her family that loved her. Thank you all so much for listening to this two-parter episode. We will be with you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. (laughs) 